can observe a wide span of the varying stations of life, different social statuses from kings to beggars, from shepherds to warriors, from lepers to Pharisees, although they're a lot more closely related than it might appear. There is, however, a common factor that exists in every story, in each account, and that is that when the Word of God comes forth, whether by direct communication like it was when God spoke to Abraham, whether it was through the written law of Moses from the mouth of a prophet, whether it was Jesus himself during his ministry or the apostles and the disciples of the New Testament, when that word was believed in and that word was acted upon by faith, the consistent outcome that was always produced is change. This morning I want to preach to you about change. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We feel your anointing in your house. We ask you, Lord, to speak to us today, Lord, just a simple message that you've laid on my heart, Lord, but that it would resonate with us, that it would resonate what you're doing in each of us as individuals and what we feel as a corporate body of your family, Lord Jesus, we pray. Have your way in us this morning. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Each time... Someone believed the Word of God in their life and acted by faith. It began a process of being transformed, of not staying the same. It wasn't only something that happened, but it was expected that it would happen. It was expected that change would be produced as people entered into covenant with God, into a binding agreement with Him. There was supposed to be something different that occurred, something changed about them. And a few Quick examples, when Abram left Ur of the Chaldees, he was not the same man as Abraham was when he offered his son on Mount Moriah back to the Lord. When Jacob met God at Bethel, fleeing from his family home after he left disaster behind him, he was not the same man that Israel was when he limped with a bad hip after wrestling all night with an angel of the Lord. When Mordecai's cousin, Hadassah, was not the same young lady that she became when she was Queen Esther, who bravely entered the throne room of King Ahasuerus. Saul of Tarsus experienced incredible change between his encounter on the Damascus Road and when he would ultimately write to Timothy as the Apostle Paul that he had run his race, kept the faith and finished his course. Jesus expects change. I'll say that again. Jesus expects change change he expects that our lives will change he does not leave it completely up to us and i'm so thankful for that but he expects that we will change that we will be changed amen he came to a fig tree and when it did not have the fruit that it was expected to have the change that it was demonstrating it seemed to have he cursed the tree he told the unprofitable servant who buried his talent in the ground that he should have at the very least invested it and made a little interest. He said something should have changed, even a small amount. Jesus told Simon Peter in Luke 22, 31 and 32, he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. When you are converted, Peter, when you are Change that you look into the meaning of that word in the original converted, it has to do with returning or coming back 
The Lord was saying, you're going to make some mistakes, Peter, but when you come back to me, when you've been changed, strengthen your brethren. Amen. John the Baptist refused to baptize religious hypocrites because they had not demonstrated a change in their behavior that would have indicated true repentance. And most of us understand this morning that the meaning of genuine repentance includes the idea of a change of direction. There is a turning around, there is a coming to a halt and recognizing that our current direction is going to destruction and turning away and changing our direction. If we do not change our direction, we have not repented. I'm not saying we have to achieve total perfection, but there has to be a demonstrated change for repentance to be genuine. Amen. If it is genuine, if it is sincere, then that change of direction is connected to a desire to have our lives changed as well. And when we are born again, it is very much the beginning of a new life. And I thank God for the new birth experience. We, when you're born again, you have a new God. Not that he's new on the scene, but he's new in your life. We have new rules. We have new principles. People don't like those, the idea of rules, but the book's got a few of them in there. Amen. We have new rules, new principles, new priorities. And what happens is we are, we are changed in our spiritual condition. We go from being lost to being found. We are changed in our relationship status. We go from being outside of his family to being his children, his sons and his daughters. And as powerful as the new birth experience is, it is the first step of a process of real change that begins. And that is the change of who I actually am. The change of the person, the change of us at the very essence of who we are. Yes, when we receive the Holy Ghost, it is incredible. We should never undervalue or underestimate the power of being filled with the Spirit of God for the first time. And if you've never had that experience, you need to pursue it with some urgency. Because if you want to be transformed, it is the power of God that is involved in that transforming process. You are also born into the family of God. But now it begins. Romans 12 and 2, very well-known verse of Scripture. This is written to people who are already born again. And to those people, Paul says, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He said, don't try to be like the world. He said, that's the old life. He said, don't go back to that. Then he said, we are to be transformed. And some of you know this already, but that word transformed is translated from the Greek word metamorpho, which comes from the same root word that we get metamorphosis from. And uh, some of you, more clearly than others, may remember being taught about metamorphosis when you're in primary school. Usually when we were kids, the simple example they gave us was the example of a butterfly, which is what I've got a butterfly on my slide today. But that life, that process, that metamorphosis begins with a little tiny egg on the leaf of a plant. And then that egg hatches into what we probably know as easily know as a caterpillar. And the caterpillar has one purpose in life, to eat. That's all they do. That's why most of us read The Very Hungry Caterpillar when we were kids. I don't think they eat all the things in that book, but a caterpillar exists simply to eat. They eat as much of that leaf and any other, to the point that's kind of disgusting, but they eat so much, they get so fat that they actually split their skin and shed it several times during the process. It's kind of gross. 
But that's the reason that it exists. And then at the appropriate time, the caterpillar becomes wrapped in what some of us may know as a cocoon or a chrysalis, and then it is hidden away. As kids, you used to find them stuck under a little tree branch or hidden under some leaves. You'd find those things and think, what in the world is this? And from the outside, it looks like nothing is happening. But inside the chrysalis, there is change that is taking place. And after the correct amount of time, that ugly fat grub becomes a beautiful butterfly because there is a process that has taken place. And so Paul is telling us, he says, do not be like the world. He said, but be committed to a process that continually takes place in us that leads to change from the inside out. Amen. Amen. How does this happen to us? Anybody ever been in a cocoon or a chrysalis? Maybe that's, you know, maybe that's why some people go missing from church for a while. They're hanging under a tree somewhere, wrapped up. None of that, that's not how it works for us. But what needs to happen inside of us? Paul said that this happens by the renewing, or Greek word which means renovation, of our minds. Don't be like the world. Be involved in the process of change that happens by the renewing or the renovating of our minds. Now on Friday night we were here with the young people and one of the things we considered was how in Ephesians chapter 2 we are told to, that we are a part of a spiritual house that is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets and that it must grow into a house where Jesus is happy to live, a habitation of the Spirit, a place where the Lord would happy to put His presence. So with that concept in mind, that we are a, a house, and we know that the Bible tells us that we are the temples of the Holy Ghost, right? So let's look at Paul's instruction for a moment in maybe terms we can understand with the idea of a home renovation. Because what does the Bible say about us when we're saved? Who do we belong to? Scripture says we are not our own. Why? Because we have been bought with a price. He paid for us. Now, if you've ever been involved in the housing market, it can be quite terrifying. You go to the bank and they tell you how many squillions of dollars you're going to need and how many more squillions you're going to be paying off every month and how many years old you're going to be when you finally pay that house off. It's very exciting. It's quite sad and depressing in a lot of ways, but... When you ever get involved in that and you start that process of looking at advertisements for houses, people trying to sell their houses, real estate agents have clever expressions and language that they use to describe why you should buy that house. I'll talk about, you know, it's a chef's kitchen. It's an entertainer's dream. And they use all these things to, you know, so much room for the kids. It means it's got a huge backyard that's just a mess already so your kids aren't going to make it worse. But if there's a house that has quite a lot of things that are wrong with it, that's in need of serious repair, the ad will usually say something like it's a handyman's dream or it's a real fixer-upper. Anybody ever seen that? It's a real fixer-upper. Right there you should see flashing red lights and go, warning, warning, unless you happen to be a real handyman. But it says it's a real fixer-upper. And I don't want to offend you this morning, but when Jesus paid for your house... And my house, he got a whole bunch of real fixer-uppers. He got a whole bunch of things that needed to be renovated. Amen. I'm not sure about you, but I didn't come in as a ready-made temple. When I came to the Lord, he didn't just move and say, everything is perfect. That's the problem when you buy someone else's house. You always want to change things. You look at a house that's pre-owned and you think, oh, I'm going to paint that wall and 
What in the world were they thinking when they put that there? And you have all these ideas. Why? Because it's not designed by you. Now, we are created by him, but before we're saved, we've had other tenants. Sinful flesh, influenced by the world and everything that comes with it. And so when he buys us, he definitely gets a fixer-upper. Amen? He declared that we were his. He declared that we belonged to him. But when he opened the door and had a look inside, I'm speaking figuratively because he doesn't need to open the door. He knows what's inside already. But when he looked inside our house for this time, he thought, there's some work to be done here. There's some work to be done here. There were, I mean, yours, but there was holes in my roof, cracks in my walls. The plumbing didn't work. Everything was an absolute disaster. But like those very smart investors who know how to take an old rundown home, I think they call it flipping a house nowadays, and they know how to turn it around, Jesus has a plan for you that only he can see. So many people would walk past because of the issues, but he looks and he sees the end from the beginning. And so, yes, we're fixer-uppers, but there's hope that we have in Jesus. Amen. Like that old broken-down house, our lives have got things in them that are going to have to go if we're going to be a success. By success, I mean make it. There are things hidden away that we don't want anybody to know that are there. They need to come out. You know, when you go to sell your house, what do you do? You, you clean it, you, you arrange everything. You, Brother Glass used to take his wife's perfume and pr- spray it on the curtain so the house smelt nice when the people came through. Some people bake a cake so the smell of the cake's in the house. You do all these things to try to persuade potential buyers that this is how we live. No? Nothing out of place, everything exactly where it should be, quiet background music, lovely fragrances and no problems whatsoever. And then when they go, you go, oh, finally, and you take all the dirty clothes out of the wardrobe and move the chair that's hiding the mark on the floor because that's reality. And the problem is we don't want people to see our reality. But Jesus knows our reality. He knows what's going on inside of us. There are things that might have been in our houses or in our family for generations. They need to go as well. They've got to come out. There are things that might have been broken by the careless actions of others. We've got to pack them up too. The reality is that the fixer-upper that you and I are is a job that's going to take a while. In fact, it's a lifetime project. It's a lifetime project. Some of you men have got those in your sheds. I I thought I'd get one amen from my wife at least, but that's okay. It may not be valuable in the eyes of the Lord, or sorry, in the eyes of the world, but for the new owner of our house, it's a passion project that he committed everything to, everything. And one day, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, went up to the top of a mountain. When they got there, the Bible says that Jesus' appearance changed, that he began to shine like the sun. His face shone like the sun, his, his garments like bright white light, it describes it as. And the word that the King James uses for what happened to Jesus was that he was transfigured. It's the exact same Greek word as in Romans, it's metamorpho, it's that same word where there is a change that takes place. You see, he was allowing those three men that he took with him to see just a glimpse of his majesty, just a a sneak peek, if you like, of who he really was because as God manifests in the flesh, he deliberately, the Bible says, took on him the form of a servant 
and humbled himself. He did not come seeking glory. He came to humble himself and he looked just like everybody else walking the streets, Jerusalem and Nazareth and Bethlehem and all those places that he traveled. But on this occasion, he allowed Peter, James and John to experience something that was amazing. And when we, we, we can see something a little bit similar in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus chapter 34, it's not on my slides, but Moses is in the presence of God. God is speaking to Moses. It's this incredible exchange, this powerful interaction. And the Bible tells us that Moses doesn't realize it, but because he's been in direct contact and communication with God, he was so affected by that that his face began to shine. Now, I don't think he was transfigured exactly like Jesus, but the, the shine was because he was with Jesus. He was in the presence of God, and he didn't realize that, so he comes down the mountain, and his face is like a million-watt neon light, and the people are afraid. A little bit understandable. The people are terrified because their leader is suddenly shining like the sun, and so because of their fear... The Bible says that Moses took a veil. I don't know what it was, a piece of cloth, who knows, but he put it over his face to sort of, you know, double it down a little bit and so that he could talk to the people and they weren't afraid. And so in this period of time where Moses has gone backwards and forwards with God and having these conversations, every time he goes to talk to God, there's no veil. It's just him in the presence of God. But then because these people are carnal and, and afraid, he puts the veil back on when he comes back to them. I mean, what's, what's the, the point of all that? You see, the New Testament tells us that the veil was symbolic of the hardness of the hearts of the children of Israel because they wouldn't listen because they refused to change. The Apostle Paul said that in the New Testament, it should not be like that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and restarting at verse 16, he said, Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, he's been talking about Moses and the veil, he said, the veil shall be taken away. When there is a desire in us to turn to him, to be changed by him, that which is, is, is dulling things down and interfering will be taken away. And now the Lord is that spirit because we're in the New Testament. Now we've got the Holy Ghost. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And then he says to the church at Corinth, but we all with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed, that's that word metamorpho again, into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So our face is open. It means there's no veil there. It doesn't mean, you can't, you know, it doesn't mean you're one of those people that can't hide their feelings. You, know, you can tell from a mile off how they're feeling. What it's saying is the veil has been taken away. He's saying they were in bondage under the law, but because we have the Spirit of the Lord, we are set free and there is liberty. And then again, he says, we are changed. We are metamorphic. We are being changed in a process like our butterfly and our caterpillar. There is a process of change that is taking place. And again, we have to say, how does it happen? Because it's great to talk about these ideas, but we need to know how to do it. You know, we can talk about it, but how does it happen? How are we changed? It has to do with the glass. And we would better understand that word as mirror. He said when the veil is removed, we are looking directly into that mirror. We are seeing the glory of the Lord and that is impacting us like it did with Moses. Amen? There's only, other, only one other time in the New Testament that we are told about looking into a mirror 
and changing. And that's in James chapter 1, verse 23, where it says, For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass or in a mirror. For he beholds himself, goes his way, and straightaway forgets what man, he forgets what he saw. So if his hair was messy or his face was not washed properly, he sees it but forgets before he even walks out of the bathroom. Amen. And he, then he says, But whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So if we can bring Second Corinthians 3 and James 2 together and see where these two overlap, we've got a mirror. We've got a reflective surface that is designed to have an impact on us. We can see clearly if we want to. If we choose to pay attention to what we're seeing, we can see clearly. There is liberty that is mentioned in both 2 Corinthians and in James. One's connected to the power of the Holy Ghost. The other's connected to the Word of God. There is liberty in both of those. And when we allow the change to take place, we are blessed. And if we bring these passages together, we see that if we will remove the things that interfere with honest assessment. You know, honesty is one of the biggest challenges as a child of God. That's why Jesus said, take the beam out of your own eye before you get the speck out of your brother's eye. Because, man, we can see the minute detail in somebody else's flaws. But we're walking around the log hanging out of our face, knocking everybody over, and we don't even know that it's there. Being honest with ourselves in God's presence is a very important thing. Being able to say, God, don't let me be deceived, confused, or inflated in my own importance. But we need to be able to have an accurate reflection of ourselves. And there are two things you will see in that reflection. You will see where you are now, and you will see where God wants you to go. Amen. You can see your current condition and the change that God wants to make. And so when we surrender to the working of His Spirit and we obey His Word, He will bless us, continually changing us from glory to glory. More and more like His image and less like ours. We will be changed. I mean, we're talking about change this morning. Amen. I am so very thankful that we can come to His house and there are those times when the Word of God encourages us where it lifts us up when we're down. It reminds us of his love for us, where how he will never leave us. It tells us that he is our comforter. We desperately need those times. We need the strength that comes from those times to, to carry on, we, to know that we can make it, and we thank the Lord for that. But we need to understand as well that this is not the primary purpose of the preached word of God, to just make us feel better. It has become the prime purpose in a lot of churches in the modern world, but the main purpose of the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. That's that blessing for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, for change. Those four things are all connected to change. They all tell us to do this and stop doing that. That's change. That's the process of change. That's what the primary purpose of the preaching of God's Word is. When we're reaching for the lost, it's that they might be changed. When we're preaching to the saved, it's that they might be changed and continue to grow and continue to become what the Lord would have us to be. Why? That the man of God may be perfect. 
that we may be perfected or completed, that we would be able to be furnished in the good work so that we would be able to produce fruit for His glory. That's what that change is about. You're saved the moment you're born again. But that change process is that you might be able to reveal Him and demonstrate Him to others around you and to a lost and a dying world. Remember our fat caterpillar on the leaf? Can do one thing. Eat. Eat. It's a consumer. That's all it does. Just eats. Goes through the change process, becomes a butterfly, and now, as a butterfly, it has the ability to reproduce, to bring forth fruit, to be productive. Now, there is a season when we are first born again where we are basically just consumers, and that's all right. That's how it's meant to be. When you are born again, the Bible talks about there is a time when there is a season of infancy that's for milk drinking. But there needs to be change. There needs to be change because as we grow, you never stop being a consumer. I want God to feed my soul. You never stop being a consumer, but you can also become a contributor. That's what change will produce. And if we never get out of the, off the bottle, we'll never eat the steak. Amen. It's, it's, it's about understanding there is a process that we are in. And my, my question this morning is this. How does your mirror look this morning? When was the last time you'd had an honest assessment with the Word of God and the Spirit of God? What is it telling you? Are you walking away going, no, that's too hard. I'm not ready to deal with that. I'm not ready to renovate that part of my life, part of my heart. Amen. Are we choosing to avoid looking into it because we're afraid of change? I hear, you know, one of the things I get to hear a lot is excuses. I don't say that to be unkind. But if God has called us to something, then God will enable us to do that something. You know, we bring really the decision. That's what we bring. We bring the decision to say, yes, Lord, I'll do what you want me to do. Yes, Lord. I'll repent. Yes, Lord, I'll surrender. Yes, Lord, I'll obey what your word is speaking to me. He expects change, but he doesn't leave us to take care of it on our own. And we're very grateful for that today because if you're like me, it would never happen. But through his grace and his mercy, when we look into that reflective surface, he said, this is where we're going. This is the image. And little by little, from glory to glory, we're going toward that image of perfection. That's where I'm taking you. And that's what he wants to do. Amen. Change, as believers, tends to happen in two ways. It's either instantaneous or it's incremental. Step by step. I love to hear testimonies of miraculous instant change. Where God just goes bang and does something in our lives. And many of us, if not all of us, could testify of that. Somebody was sharing with me the other day how when they were prayed for, the Lord just did some incredible things in just a couple of moments while they were being prayed for. And that's fantastic. But most change happens step by step, day by day, the process of letting the Word of God, together with the Spirit of God, change me. That's how most change happens. In fact, most of the time, most of the time when we receive that instantaneous change, it is in the middle of faithful consistency. When it's an ordinary day, serving the Lord, being faithful, doing the things that we believe he wants us to do, and he just goes bang and does a miracle. 
Now, I know he does the miraculous outside of that, but when we're talking about that change process, being connected and being faithful is so often where the Lord does the miraculous. Amen. If we're doing that day-to-day thing, you know, it's not always exciting. You know, the old song says living for Jesus is the best life of all, and that is 100% true. But not every day is exciting because we're people and we, we get used to life. Well, it's just another day. But it's another day to serve him. It's another day where he's kept us. It's another day where if we trust him, he's going to bring us through that day regardless of how bad that day may be. And if we trust him, the ordinary days are the powerful days. And then just at some moment, God chooses to deliver us from something, to heal us from something, to give us a revelation about something. He does a miracle in the midst of the mundane. So often the supernatural is woven into the natural. It's the ordinary where God does the extraordinary, but it's about change. Stand with me if you would this morning. I want to challenge you this morning if I can. That's what the Word of God's supposed to do. It's supposed to challenge us to change. It's supposed to challenge us that we would say, God, don't let me stay where I am. Because if we're honest, we go through seasons where we come into the church, we get born again, and we get comfortable. And the Lord is poke, poke. Poke, 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 poke. And we're like, leave me alone. Poke, poke. And then the preacher gets up and preaches and pokes the exact same spot. Poke, poke. And we get irritated because we're getting sick of that spot being poked. But the Lord is saying, let's deal with this. Let's look in the mirror. Let's look in the word. Let's listen to my voice. Let's listen to my spirit. I'm taking you somewhere. There's a process that's happening here. And if you will let me transform you, I will use you for my glory. He'll take us from being those consumers to being contributors. From being freshly born again to being weapons in his hand. Let's lift our hands and worship him this morning. Thank you, Jesus.